Okay. <clears throat> new series time. We're going to move into a new series. And I want us <clears throat> to start thinking about mountains. I want to just kind of get our brains around some mountains. Um, so I got a couple, I don't know, just some, some stuff to, to get us thinking about it. Here we go. First question, first thought, first challenge. What is the highest mountain climbed by somebody sitting in this room? Can anybody think of a mountain that they have climbed? Let's see. Contest over. Next question. What, what is that? This is an actual question. Yeah. Yeah. What is, what is the base camp? Do you know? Just to the base camp, right? 16,000 or 20,000? I don't remember. It was above Dahl Lake, which is the big bar. Wow, fascinating. You know, and I was kind of like, I had done the Machu Picchu Trail a long time ago, and I was like looking at that, and it peaked out at 13,700, and I was like, I think I got this one. (laughs) And then, little to my knowledge, you just did, I mean, even if the base camp at Himalaya was lower than that, I would still give you the victory, but I would imagine that would be like 16, are you looking it up, Ryan? Yeah, Yeah, Ryan, that's that's a good, okay, I think we can just go ahead and give her. All right, guess? I'd say 18,000. 18,000? Big Bear counts. Did you hike all the way up to Big Bear, or did you drive all the way up? Um... <laughs> Where was this at? Yeah, just that could have been. That's like probably a lot of carrots that you had in, you know, it's probably a couple. Um, okay, here's the next question. Uh, well, and Brian, when you. 17,000. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. <clears throat> um, here's the next question. There's one at 17 and there's one at 18. Got it. So somewhere in there, she still is the champion by a couple thousand feet. So um, I should have got you a, a prize, maybe uh, maybe a ski pole or something like that, or a hiking pole. Um, the next question is, is you got to guess what mountain this is. I mean, I know it's kind of hard because it's like I can put a clue up if that'd be helpful. I think it's the one where the arc is Mount Ararat. Oh, Mount Ararat. Is it Mount Whitney? It is not Mount Whitney. It's California. It's not California. It isn't. It is in North America. Here's my clue. Oh, it's Denali. It's Denali. There it is, right there. So that was my <laughs> man. I was waiting all week long just to show to show that one. <laughs> Yeah, it would have been tragic. I would have just quit. Just the, the, It would have been done. Um, first person to climb Mount Everest. Oh, oh, oh. Um, I'm going to say go up and come back down. There it is right there, Sir Edmund Hillary. Look at that, man. Could you? I was thinking about that, just kind of thinking about what it would have been like to do that before, before anyone, before anybody had even thought about climbing the highest mountain and just to be a pioneer like that. What a man that guy is. 
Okay, here's the next one, and I hope that together we can, I don't know if I could have done this by myself. Can you name two biblical mountains, two mountains in the Bible? See if we can get at least two of them. I named one, Ararat. Ararat, okay. And Sinai, good, there we got two of them, that's good. Um, there's a lot of different ones, and I was kind of looking at some of the ones, I mean, obviously the Mount of Olives is, is mentioned in the Bible. Um, what, other, what other mountains were mentioned in the Bible that I was looking at? Horeb. Mount Horeb, yep. Or Elijah. Um, uh, and then here's, 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 I think this is the last one. I think by now we're, we're fully in the mountain mode. But here's the last one. Name this movie. A Rocky Mountain rescue es- expert has retired because of his role in a woman's death. But the kidnapping of his girlfriend by a hijacker eager to recover stolen money spurs the mountaineer into action. Got to say, you got to name the movie. There it is. Stallone and Cliffhanger. It was an avalanche of thrills back in 1993. <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> we're going <clears> to <throat> move through the series on the mountains in Matthew. Um, one of the ways you can trace Jesus' steps, one of the ways that you can kind of observe what Jesus is doing is by the mountains that he ascends. Obviously in the scriptures, um, and, and just kind of in the, in the mindset of the, someone in the ancient Near East, a mountain would be kind of the closest that you would get to the presence of God, right? They had the mentality that, you know, kind of here on, we are here on earth and that God's presence is above us or in the heavens, which would be where the stars. So the, the higher you would get on a mountain, incidentally, why do they build the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis, right? They think that they can ascend up into the heavens to, to be with God. So there is this mentality that, the closer you, the higher you get, the, the closer you are to the heavens. So you can kind of look at what, what is the author, what is Matthew trying to teach us when Jesus is on top of these mountains? So in Matthew 4, we're going to read about today the temptation as Satan tempts Jesus on top of a mountain. Um, we're going to spend, after second Sunday, we're gonna, I think we're going to spend two weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus feeds 4,000 on top of a mountain. There's the Mount of Transfiguration, a real pivotal moment in the gospel narratives. Um, there's the Mount of Olives. There's Gethsemane where Jesus prays before he dies. And then it's interesting as Jesus um, is, is leaving after his resurrection, he gives us great commission and it's given on a mountaintop. Um, so we're going to look at these, these mountains in Matthew. We're going to trace um, these mountains over the next couple weeks. Um, and if while we do that, let's just turn, open up our Bibles, and we're just going to get right after it on Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It's on page 676 if you've got a Bible around you. Everybody there? Let's do this. Let's, we'll just kind of, if you feel like you want to read, just read a verse. And that will, I, I love to do that. We'll just kind of read it in the round. So if you want to read a verse, read a verse or two. And then we'll all just kind of pick up together. Let me read, just read the first verse to get us started. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, 
Hunter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stories to become sorry, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written. Jesus countered with another citation from Deuteronomy. Don't you dare test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. So I want to focus here on this last temptation. He, he's tempted three times in, in the book, I mean in this passage. And I want to focus on the last one where, where Satan leads him up to a mountain. But before we get up to that mountain, um, let me just kind of focus in on a couple things that are happening here in this wilderness moment. So Jesus is in the wilderness, and one of the things that Matthew is trying to do here is he's trying to connect Exodus language, right, the Israelites, after they are, um, after they are liberated from, from Egypt, are being led into the wilderness. He's trying to connect that with what Jesus is doing, right? With what Jesus, as Jesus is also being led into the wilderness. Um, the other kind of piece that's happening here is this number 40. <clears throat> we learn that Jesus is in, in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, right? Moses also... Um, in, in, this, in the Exodus narrative, fast for 40 days. Um, the Israelites are, how, are in the desert for how many years? 40, 40 years. After Moses kills um, the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew um, not the Hebrew, the Egyptian soldier, after he kills him, he is exiled. Like he leaves Egypt for 40 years. Um, again, Moses is up on Sinai for 40 days receiving the law. So this number 40 is all kind of throughout. Again, what I would say here is that Matthew is careful that he's connecting his narrative, Jesus' narrative, right, the, the gospel, to the larger Israel liberation narrative, right? We have to always remember <clears throat> that the gospels aren't like, like Jesus' Hail Mary plan at the end, like, oh man, I really messed up with Israel. Let me just see what I can do here with Jesus. It's all connected, right? And Matthew's trying to show that Jesus, what will this new Israel representative, right? What will this new Israel, as he's being led out into the wilderness, will he be faithful? Will he be obedient, right? What will this, this new Moses, as Moses is being led in, in um, this kind of new Moses being led out, this new Messiah, what will this liberating king look like? So, Jill, you can sit down, girl. You don't have to like her. Don't be sure. Where's, where's the kids? Not stop here. Huh? Not stop here. You're just here solo. Oh, okay. I'm like, did they get <laughs> They're not. Is he coming? They're here. They're oh, they're. Oh, okay. Okay. 
They're in the back. I thought you were just taking a little Sunday morning break. Um, Jill, have you climbed any mountains higher than the base camp of Everest? That's all we need to know. <laughs> okay. Um, we were talking about the mountains in Matthew, and we had a little fun talking about um, some, some mountains that we've climbed. So the, the, the initial thing that I want to say here is as you read the temptation, as you read the Jesus narrative, it's important to understand the continuity of the whole scripture story, right? That Jesus is actually acting as the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be, as the new Moses, right? As this Messiah, this liberating king, who's not liberating from a geographic, um, from, from Egypt to the promised land, not from a geographic slavery, right? but from the slavery of death and of sin. This is what Jesus is doing. Now, we get to this character in the narrative, and I just thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about this character, this Satan character. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about Satan, one of the inter- couple of interesting things about him, um, that his name in Greek, when you look at his name, it's Diabolos, right? We probably heard the name Diablo, right? This kind of Satan character. It comes from this word diabelion, And I honestly, just so you guys will be honest, I don't know how to speak Greek. I just made that up. So it could be wrong. I could have pronounced that wrong, but it sounds accurate. Diabellin. And this word means to split, right? So the the nature of Satan's very name comes from this word to split. And I want to say this about Satan, because this is important to think about him in in this way. That his primary work is and always has been and always will be It's isolation, it's splitting, it's dividing, it's segregation. Anywhere that you see that happening, it is first and foremost the work of the evil one. So we could think very concretely in our current political political climate where we just see what? We just see the two parties splitting farther and farther and farther apart. And we could just say, in, in just understanding Satan's nature, it's just demonic work, right? Anytime that you see people splitting and dividing and segregating farther and farther and farther apart, it's the work of Satan. That's exactly what he wants to do. <clears throat> um, and when you see, again, in the garden, right? What was Satan's primary work in the garden? What did he divide? Adam and Eve were together. They were one flesh, they were split. Adam and Eve were in relationship with God. What happens? They were split. Adam and Eve were in relationship with the garden. What happened? They had to leave it, right? His primary work always has just been simply isolating, splitting, dividing. Paul's overarching theme in the New Testament, unity. How do we get people to get along, to serve one another, to love one another, to bear with one another's sins. We look around this room like, man, there's just some different people in this room, some different views, some different outlooks, races, gender. We just don't have a lot in common. And Satan always will say, well, here's, here's a way that I can split this person and fracture this person and isolate this person. And it's always been his primary work to split and divide. It's exactly what he's trying to do in the wilderness is he's trying to divide Jesus from the Father. Right? It's he's trying to split him from the Father. One other thing I want to say about Satan too is this. When we're in sin, when we sin, right, oftentimes we feel isolated and alone in our sin. 
if anybody knew that I was doing this, and there's shame, and there's guilt, and there's covering, and there's hiding, his work always has and always will, I think I put that on the other side, always will be to split. When we sin, we feel this, this isolation. We feel we're the only one in the world struggling with this issue, right? Um, now, you might be sitting here thinking, as I've talked about Satan, and you might be sitting here thinking like, oh boy, you know, there's those Christians talking about Satan. You mean that little cartoon, um, pre-modern, superstitious story, you know, that kind of, come on, like we're in, we're in, it's a 21st century, let's get beyond this, right? Um, <clears throat> but as you think about Satan, right, you might even put him in the same, or the devil, you might put him in the same car- uh, category of believability as this particular <laughs> devil, right? It's kind of like the same thing, like they're just kind of cartoon characters that just kind of exist out there, right? But think about it like this. Tim Keller points this out in his book. He says, if you believe in God, in a good good personal supernatural being, anybody, we believe that about God, right? It's perfectly reasonable to believe that there are evil personal supernatural beings. The Bible says that in the world, there are very real forces of evil. And these forces, now this is interesting, he says this, are incredibly complex and intelligent, right? Think about the way that the evil forces work in this world. Satan, the chief of these forces, is always tempting us away from splitting, isolating, dividing, splitting us away from God. It's what we saw in Adam in the Garden of Eden and with Jesus in the wilderness. So again, Satan is is real. And he's. I, I thought that this was interesting that Keller uses this language, complex and intelligent. Now, let me say one more thing about Satan, because I think this is about the last thing I want to say about him. As we continue to link this narrative, right, it's important to see this narrative kind of as the the culmination of of the exodus, of the liberation, of of Israel's liberation. Um, I want to go back to, to, to the Israelites and back to Pharaoh. There's Charlton Heston ready to, ready to take the scene with Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh, did he have absolute power, tangible, cruel, dominating? Did he have that kind of power, right? Yes or no? Yes, right? Like his power, again, was was dominating. It was real. It was tangible. It was legit. If he didn't have that power, say he was just kind of a puppet and just didn't have any power, then Israel could have just kind of got up one day and said, uh, hey, we're kind of done with this slavery thing. We're going to go find another employer who's going to treat us with better. We, we need benefits. We need all these. Like, we have choices here, Pharaoh, right? But Pharaoh held the power, right? If you wanted to escape, if you wanted to run, if you didn't make the bricks, if you didn't work, that was your very life at stake. It's what made the exodus, th- that freedom that they, des- that they got from that, it's what made that miracle so amazing. It's because Pharaoh had the power, Pharaoh had the domination, Pharaoh had the cruelty, and Moses led them in freedom from that, right? It's what made that liberation so real. Now, think about this um, in terms of what Jesus is liberating us from. 
if Satan doesn't have any power, right? Keller says that, again, going back to Keller, evil, personal, supernatural beings, they're real, they're complex, they're intelligent, they're tempting, away, uh, tempting us away from God. If Satan doesn't have that power, right? And we just decide, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm just kind of done with Satan. I'm just going to stop sinning and I'm going to perfect myself because I don't, you know, it, it robs Jesus of what he actually came to do. The central message of the New Testament, as we see exemplified here, is that Jesus is saving, just as Moses did. He's freeing, he's liberating his people from the oppressive slavery of Satan. If Satan's power is dismissed or, excuse me, or diminished, if he's just a myth, if he's just a cartoon, if it's just a primitive story, if it's just lies, then Christ's saving mission becomes meaningless, right? If Israel just decided one day, hey, we're done, this guy, Pharaoh's not treating us right, we're out of here, let's just leave, right? The Exodus just loses all of its power, right? That liberation movement loses all of its power. If we just decide one day, hey, you know what, Satan, you're just, I, I don't really like you, red's not my color anyway, I'm done with, you know, then Christ saving, uh, Russell says it like this, for Christians, a devil may be a metaphor, but it is a metaphor for something that is real, that really brings horror to the world every day, and that threatens to lay the entire earth to waste. Metaphors always have teeth. Metaphors, uh, they tether us to what is real and right in front of us, okay? Is that enough about Satan? We got a good <laughs> example of what Satan's trying to do here. Let's talk about the temptation then. What's Jesus being tempted here with this third temptation? Satan leads him up onto the, this high mountain, right? And what does he tempt him with? Let me read it to you real quick. He says, uh, <clears throat> verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. What's the temptation that Jesus uh, is facing here? There's a lot of probably different things you could say, but anybody want to guess? What do you, what do you hear that he's being tempted with? Greed. Greed? That's a good one. Anybody else want to take a guess? I came up with this word. I, I think Jesus is being tempted with power, right? He's being given the, is that what you said, Joy? Yeah. See, Joy, you should have been like, it's power. And then I was like, yeah, Joy, you're right. In an anti-powerful way. In an anti-powerful way. He's being tempted with power, right? Um, one of the things that's fascinating about this that, that's happening, and this is just kind of a little side note, but I just found this so intriguing. Um, and the, all the commentators note this. They know that what Satan does, right, what the devil does is he actually takes Jesus kind of higher and higher and higher. So again, the original temptation just kind of happens as he's in the wilderness, right? Think about the kind of lowness of the desert where, where Jesus was. And then Satan leads him higher to the top of the temple, right? And then Satan leads him even higher to the top of a mountain. And what the commentators are saying about this and, and the way that this works is that Satan is, is kind of tempting him. Think about the way that we believe power works. What do you try and do with your career? You climb the what? Climb the ladder. You're trying to move up in the company, right? You're trying to show how you're going to 
be at the top and stay at the top. Um, and the commentators all also say that the primary movement before Jesus goes to be tempted in the wilderness is a movement um, downward. So Jesus starts in Nazareth, then he moves kind of, again, geographically downward towards the Jordan River, and again, geographically downward into the desert. Um, Frederick Dale Bruner says it like this. He says, the Holy Spirit's way is not so much up into the fascinatingly great as it is down into the ordinarily mundane and into the way of the cross and suffering, right? Henry Nouwen would put it like this. I, I thought Nouwen's, this was from the book that we read a couple months ago. Um, the way of the Christian is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending on the cross. The downward moving way of Jesus is the way to joy and the peace of God, a joy and peace that is not of this world. We've made this comment before, but so many people in this world, and we see it all around us, they climb and climb and climb and climb that corporate ladder only to find out that the ladder's leaning on the wrong building, right? And Satan, again, it's this subtle movement from wilderness to temple to mountain, and he's tempting Jesus all along the way, saying, look how much power I can give you as you go up and up and up and up. One other note on temptation. <clears throat> Temptations are always a slight twist on reality. Kind of like the, have you heard the statement, the best lies are just shades of the truth, right? They're just kind of, the, they just take a truth and they just twist it a little bit to make you believe it, to make you fall into it. Temptations are very much the same thing. Sometimes you might be tempted to think that with anger, and with demands, that's going to help you get your way, right? This is a big temptation for parents as we think about with our kids. Me as a parent, that if I raise my voice, if I demand more out of my kids, that will, that's the way that I'm going to get my way. Another temptation is that lust or pornography, it offers you intimacy without vulnerability, right? You think that you can be intimate, that this, this woman or man or whatever kind of pornography it is, that they want to be intimate with you. And there's nothing there. It's just a hollow lie. But it's this slight twist on reality that we all, um, we all could struggle with. Maybe this temptation that you're protecting the person by not telling them the truth, right? Just a slight twist on reality. A temptation is that when I get my next raise, then... That's when I'll be generous. That's when I'll start to give. That's when I will, will share. Revenge, that's what's going to make me feel better. That person who wronged me, right? That person who wronged Once I get revenge on that person, then I will, I'll be okay. Maybe this temptation, it's important to, to know. It's important that I get the credit for what I did, the respect that I'm owed for, for my hard work, for what I've done here. So temptations, and again, you could just take all of these temptations, these slight twists on reality, right? And you could just put them up against Jesus' words and just see that these, they're just twists on reality. That's what Satan tries to do is he just tries to, I would say this, 
he always just tries to give us a shortcut to liberation, right? This passage is all about freedom. It's about liberation. It's about Jesus in the, in the desert as the new Israel being freed, right? Leading his people into freedom. And Satan always just offers us a shortcut. Anger, demands, passive aggressiveness, lies, manipulation, lust, coercions. They're just the shortcuts. Jesus, in fact, says this in <clears throat> Luke 24 through 26. As he's, after he's resurrected, he's talking, to, um, he's talking to two people on the road to Emmaus. And they're kind of going back and forth. And Jesus says, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? Jesus understood that the way to his kingdom wasn't the shortcut that the devil offered him. Jesus would have to walk in the valley of suffering of the cross before he would ever see the glory, right? Often in our lives, we're offered all these shortcuts, these temptations that Satan says, if you just do this, you can get there. And Jesus says often, and we know this is true in our lives. We can think of examples in our lives that this is true. You have to traverse through that to understand what it means to be in glory. If you just go from, um, they always say that early success is such a bad teacher, right? And you see people who suffer and struggle and have, and have a hard time, and then they get to that position. And it's only because of the suffering and the struggle that they're actually able to enjoy where they are in the world. One other thing about the temptation, because as, as Satan's leading him, this word that he says, when you come and bow and, and worship me, it's this word, it's just a singular act, right? Satan is kind of saying like, he's kind of saying like this, hey Jesus, just this. Satan asks him in effect, what is one momentary gesture when the whole world awaits you? I, I often wonder if this is what Jesus was thinking about this. Uh, when he said in Matthew 16, just a couple chapters later, what is it if you gain the whole world, let yet lose your soul? Because you took the shortcut, you skipped the suffering, you twisted the reality, you trusted your salvation, your freedom, your exodus plan, and not Jesus's. The last thing I want to talk about is kingdoms, because what Satan's offering Jesus here is a different kingdom. Right, and, and I'm going to play with this, these two words, kingdom. One kind of has this lowercase k, and Jesus has an uppercase k. Jesus already had his kingdom in mind. And this obviously becomes a metaphor for us because we so often agree to Satan's kingdoms because we don't have any kingdoms in our mind. We don't have a vision of the kingdom of God. So we settle for all of Satan's lowercase k kingdoms. This is always, this has always and always will be the heart of spiritual conflict. What kingdom will you choose? What kingdom will you choose? C.S. Lewis once said, great quote by C.S. Lewis, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Oftentimes we choose those lowercase kingdoms, those mud pies in a slum, because we have no vision for what God is offering us, this beautiful holiday at the sea, this infinite joy. Again, this heart of spiritual conflict, what kingdom will you choose? I've always defined the gospel as the simple statement that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And Lord there being both a political and a divine title, it's always been a, a, a decision is a kingdom one. To whom will you pledge your allegiance? Whom will you worship? Will you worship, again, the uppercase, the capital, the kingdom of Jesus with generosity and kindness and peace, joy, patience, goodness, diversity, unity, love, freedom, or do you want to worship the kingdom of Caesar, of Satan, with division and power grabs and demands and lies and aggression and shortcuts and a twisted reality, the kingdom that leads to slavery? Which kingdom will you choose? Okay, I think that should be enough for this morning. Um, let's move into our question time. <clears throat> 